I said, but Ma, I'm just lonely. You know, it's a beautiful thing to share life. And I've been single for many years. And she said, honey, you know what's worse than being lonely single is being lonely in a relationship. And I guarantee you, you have friends who are lonely in a relationship and they are jealous of your freedom. And I thought, holy shit, I've never imagined that because I've got a relationship on a pedestal as this like Disney movie that's been fed to us. Welcome to Enoughness. This is Lisa Carmen Wang, U.S. national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today, I'm here with Vika Victoria. She is an award-winning storyteller, speaker, and educator, and she's bringing millions of men into healthy masculinity. And Vika and I met a few years ago at a social impact conference focused on creating a better vision, a healthier, more connected world. Uh, but one thing that we realized as coaches, as leaders, that even if your work is focused on helping other people in their personal growth, really recognize their limiting stories and beliefs that Sometimes we're not immune to those programs or limiting beliefs as well. So Vika, I'd love to welcome you to the podcast and also hear your story of how you broke through uh, the, the stories and voices in your life to finally discover your own. Oof, Lisa, thank you for having me on this show. I'm so thrilled to be here. And yeah, just to jump right into that question, because it's so valuable. We're not ever just teachers. We're constantly students. And to be reminded of our own humanity is so humbling. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I had this breakthrough, which really started with a breakdown. You know, I'm 33. I come from a Ukrainian culture where all of my girlfriends are married with babies on the way. I was also raised in the South. And so almost all of my friends are married with babies on the way. And I had just had like a real tough conversation with my mother. And she said, Victoria, why do you need men? In my generation, we needed them. In your generation, you don't. You make your own money. You build your own business. Why would you welcome this risk? And I just thought, wow, mom, like dropping some real pragmatic wisdom. And I said, but ma, I'm just lonely. You know, it's a beautiful thing to share life. And I've been single for many years and she said, honey, you know what's worse than being lonely single is being lonely in a relationship. And I guarantee you, you have friends who are lonely in a relationship and they are jealous of your freedom. And I thought, holy shit, I've never imagined that because I've got a relationship on a pedestal as this like Disney movie that's been fed to us. And so I went to the beach and I, I treated myself like I would treat one of my students. And I started unpacking all of the layers of conditioning from media to family to culture to society about what it meant to be single and why it hurt so much to feel like I was the last woman picked on the Red Rover, Red Rover line. And, and what I realized was I was waiting for my life to begin with love, that I was only half complete because a man hadn't chosen me and I hadn't chosen him. And that 
was just profoundly sad because as someone who broke away from a very successful corporate career and went backpacking for 28 months around the world and was, you know, summited mountains solo and did all of these badass things, I did not think that I was drinking that Kool-Aid at all. And so the awareness that I secretly was brought me back to, you know, the, the Buddhist principle that all of our suffering lies in our attachment. And so if I really wanted to liberate myself from these conditionings, I needed to release any attachment of what my life was supposed to look like and who was supposed to come into it and at what timeline it was supposed to happen. And I went back to my core fear, which is I'm not a good mother if I don't have a husband to raise those babies which went back to my core wound of my father walking away. And so I froze my eggs when I was 28, when I was an ad exec, because I knew my life was going to be unconventional. And I just realized that the last straw that I needed to really make peace with was, can you feel confident and, and really joyful about raising babies on your own in the event that life doesn't go the way that you planned? And I sat with it and I thought, I'm so blessed to have a mother who's a celebrity baby nurse, so very lucky there. I'm so blessed to have a community of my sisters and my friends. I know that I can raise these babies on my own if need be. And with that, I just released all of the fear and all of the misery. And I woke up the next day, Lisa, and I felt so much better. (laughs) So it's a brave new world now. Amazing. I mean, that narrative, um, especially around you need to find someone to love you in order to be complete, is it's one that so many of us have, but it's especially detrimental for women. Um, And and to your point of you know bringing up children and egg freezing is that the one difference. And I still think that this is perhaps the 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 primary and the last place that we have to figure out in terms of getting like true equality is the fact that women have, we carry the baby, right? We physically have to deal with that and we have to raise it. And so if we, if in a society where we couldn't have that economic freedom, we were absolutely dependent. But now that we can have that economic freedom, we can have those equal opportunities that it's, there's still the socialization that you're, you're sad, you're lonely, you're barren if you don't have that partner. Yeah. And, you know, when you were able to release this, you know, how do you feel now about your, what you're prioritizing and uh, what is your relationship to love and partnership? Yeah, it's a great question. I also think it was amplified by the fact that we're living through a pandemic And nothing really makes you viscerally lonely, like recognizing that at a time when the world is falling apart, everyone's got their person except you. So I will say the hack to this was adopting a kitten and just getting a a daily dose of oxytocin. My, My relationship to love has changed because now what I see is that the big love is me. So for the last two years, I've had this post-it note. I write a post-it note, kind of like my mantra of the year, every year on my birthday. And one year it was big love and one year it was brave voice. And looking at that post-it note every day, it's like bittersweet because I feel like I'm so brave with my voice. And yet when I see big love, it just feels like I failed 
or I haven't been picked and the not enoughness is so pervasive. And so I changed the way I think about big love. Big love is, am I loving bigly? Am I creating opportunities for um, love in my life in non-romantic ways? And so I've, I think I've stepped up as uh, an aunt, as a daughter, as a sister. I've, I've taken all of the love that I wish was coming into me and I've just alchemized it and poured it back out. And I think what has happened with men is that I am very clear about what I want from the very first conversation. And it really takes them aback. But I, I say, you know, if you believe that you are time, then why would you waste yourself? So I am not going to go on four dates and placate you. There are two things that are curious questions for me. And the way that you answer these two questions will let me know if we want to move forward or if we're wasting time. And the two questions are, tell me what your ideal relationship looks like. And the second is, how do you feel about fatherhood? And the way that they answer those questions tells me everything I need to know. Because especially living, you know, in a new agey city like LA, I'm kind of a dying unicorn. There's not a whole lot of people vouching for the honor of monogamy, and that's important to me. And so if you're not down for that or you don't see the honor and beauty of committing yourself to a partner and choosing them every day over and over again and creating that psychological safety for your family unit, that's totally cool. That's your prerogative, but that's not for me. So I'd say that I have felt more emboldened to just cut through the fat and be real honest about where I am and what I want. Amazing. I talk about this. Um, I have a fuck yes or no list um, <laughs> for not, not just for partners, but for friends, for opportunities. You know, earlier we were talking about focus, right? And I think that's, that's like, 2020 focus, right? It's where everything's going to hell and you're like, what's going on? And the person who's able to find that focus in all the lanes in their life, right? Focusing on the things that make you feel good, that make you feel whole and joyful um, in whatever form they bring. Um, but the other thing that I started doing was, so a lot of women I know have these lists of like, my dream man, you know, it's like, he's got this and he's, he's like, whatever, you know, he's artistic and he's stable and he's emotionally, you know, in touch and he's financially, you know, stable and all these things. And I realized that one list that was missing was, you know, it's, there's one thing to describe him, yeah. but there's how does he treat me? Yes. I realized that, you know, I, I actually went through this experience where I went on a few dates with this guy and then it's, it's somewhat small, but it was, indicative to me, especially in, in this age of texting, that it would take him so long to respond to me. Like, wow. for, you know, it's like three days, two days. And then like once he just like for a week, and this was early stages, right? Yeah. So early stages. And I was like, I told my friend, I was like, but he's, he's perfect. He's all X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And she said, well, here's the thing. It's about how he treats you. So he could be the perfect dream guy, yeah. but if he doesn't, prioritize communicating with you. Yeah. Guy. And yeah. that's when I created this list of, okay, he 
prioritizes communicating with me. He respects my work. He supports. So it's, he does these yeah. things for me. Yeah. That's when it really started to change where I was like, I don't care what color hair he has or like what he does for mm. work. It's just, it's those qualities of prioritizing the, the, the unit, the container. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you picked up on that because that's again, how we're wired the checklist and an exercise that I do when men come to me and they say, I'm ready to find a woman. I'm like, okay, I'm going to drop you into a guided story Um, because so often we're thinking in our frontal cortex and we've got to be in our limbic brain to really access our intuition. And so I drop them into this guided story and I have them imagine the perfect Sunday morning and it just so happens to be their wife's birthday and they're walking down the stairs and the kids are up and they're making her favorite blueberry pancakes. And then I hand the mic off to them after that moment. And men who say, I don't know what I'm looking for in a woman are able to go into a 10 minute monologue describing their perfect day with this woman And at the end, I say, okay, the kids are in bed and the arts and crafts are still out. So you decide to write her a letter about what she means to you and how she makes you feel. And so they have this, because I get them an art set. I really believe in art therapy. And they draw a painting for her. And on the back, they write this letter. And then when they come out of the meditation, I go, how do you feel? And he's like, I feel like she's right there. And I feel like she made me a better man. And that process then helps them understand that it's not how hot they are or what they have on paper, but it's about how does your partner make you feel? And then they put that painting on the back of their bedroom wall. And I say, think about not bringing someone into your space unless you feel like you could one day give them that painting. And so that also becomes kind of this this litmus test of am I welcoming people into my sphere sexually, energetically that are in line with the mission that I'm on? Or is this just short-term gratification pleasure? And and like a scarcity mindset, loneliness, you know, filling up totally. that hole. Totally. Yeah. I'd say what's, I love the way that you said that. And I'd say what's more important is the list of how does he make you feel? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, psychological safety is so important to me. So when men are volatile with their communication style, I'm like, nope, not, not happening. And the unfortunate thing, and I am guilty of this too, is there's, I see memes about, you know, it's just like girls accepting mediocre and just not okay behavior. It's, you know, there's one joke of like falling in love with the guy who texts you back once in 24 hours, <laughs> it's like, cause he, there's finally a person decent enough to actually text you back, you know, one time within a 24 hour time period. Um, and it's, it's that we've become so accustomed to that sort of behavior. So then the moment someone shows like any sort of decency, you're like, Oh my God, that's right. the one. Yeah. Um, but and- what does that say about where we've set the bar? Yeah. I just had an experience, my first COVID kiss, I was really careful, um, and he disappeared. He went MIA for two months, and then he texted me out of the blue, and he was like, hey, how was your weekend? And I thought, I'm sorry, have you rewritten history? And so in that moment, I had a choice. I could ignore him, or I could use it as a teaching moment. And so I, I wrote... I'm going to explain this to you so that you can spare a future woman from the same frustration. And I, I broke down everything that he did. 
And, you know, my last line was only cowards sleep beside a queen and flee. Mm-hmm. And it just felt really good to articulate. And he thanked me. He's like, I'm integrating these lessons. I was unaware. I'm so sorry. I was caught up in my own stuff. I'm like, yeah. And I imagine that the reason why you treated me like this is because other women have let you off the hook for this very destructive communication style. And you've met a woman that's not. And I, I'm glad that you can see like the goodwill here because I fundamentally believe like we're all going to fuck up, right? We're all just vessels for each other's healing. So how can we help each other grow forward? And it's the difference between call out culture and call forward culture. Yeah, I really like that differentiation. And I think that there's, um, there's, and I've probably, I felt this as well. It's like there's sometimes there's shame or guilt, right? When you don't want to confront someone, especially in these intimate romantic conversations. And, you know, most often it's one party doesn't feel the same way as another party, and then they don't know how to communicate that. And so I even challenged myself, um, you know, I had gone on a few dates, dating app people that I met and, um, there was just one person that I had gone on a few dates with and I was just like, this is not going anywhere. And it would have been really easy to just stop responding and just like wait for it to trickle. So I, I actually did this twice where I, I'm now com- I committed where I was like, you know what, I'm going to be honest and I'm just going to say, hey, really enjoy the time that we spent together. I don't feel like I, I don't feel the same co- connection romantically. Um, and, you know, I want, I want it you to find someone who will reciprocate the same sort of energy um, and like love that you have to give. And I hope you find someone, you know, that does that for you. (laughs) That's so so kind. Each of those times I did get that. Thank you. And it was really hard. Like I pressed send. I was like, Oh my God, no, (laughs) It, it is worth it. It's just uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. But it feels so good to be on the receiving end of that too, that someone cared enough to be tender with your heart. Yeah. So, I mean, all of this work, you know, you've done a bunch of work in storytelling, in just owning your voice. And that's where we really started with taking back your narrative. I want to combine that with the work that you are doing in terms of bringing men into healthy masculinity. Um, How do those two mesh together and where is your narrative taking you now? Yeah, thanks for asking that. You know, I think our purpose is in large part driven by our pain. There is a lifelong riddle that I have to understand men because of the wounding that I faced when my father walked out on us. And a big part of me writing this book is also to reclaim the narrative of daddy abandonment issues, which is so unfairly plaguing millions of women in the world. And it's something we never asked for. And it's something that is like a scarlet letter that um, the world seizes differently through, especially romantic partners. And so a big reason why I do the work I do is to be a living, breathing case study that it's possible to overcome the thing that destroys you and have it create you instead of destroy you. So what, you know, what I think about is how can we take our narratives and make them generative? And for me, working with men began as this quest for my own catharsis to to rewrite the narrative of, of what men were to me, because as somebody who has endured a spectrum of 
violence and sexual assault from men as almost every woman I know that has survived through her 20s. And as someone who has been at the hands of men of very high integrity all the way to very low integrity, I wanted to create more positive data points in my mind to understand that my father was the exception, not the rule. And so when I started these dinners, I had just won the moth, which is a storytelling competition. It was really that inflection point where I realized that storytelling publicly, not just scribbled in your journals or set over a campfire with friends, but if you are brave enough to stand on stage and have strangers, in my case, it was 300 strangers, hold space for you to bear your guts and share your story and then come up to you with tears in their eyes and have resonance with your pain. It's a spiritual experience like nothing else I've felt before. That was really the moment when I recognized that we are vessels for each other's healing and the stories carry the wisdom that no lecture and no academia can pierce through. And so I started teaching Hacking Human Connection um, on stages all over the world. The second inflection point was that my grandfather suddenly died. And when he died, I lost that North Star. Um, And in the absence of not having a father, a boyfriend, a husband, I had this massive hole in my heart for the masculine. Um, And so I moved to LA to care for my grams. And I got very lucky that my roommates were too very philosophical, grounded men. And we would have multi-hour conversations, often around a campfire. And then I'd cook dinner and they'd invite their friends over. And it brought me right back to those fishing trips with my dad because he was my first best friend. That's why I feel so comfortable with men because I see all of them through the lens of, you could be my new best friend. And when I went back on the road, I thought, this has been so grounding for my healing and my grief and my depression as I'm traveling the world, what if I just gathered men in every city that I respect and revere and we have this round table discussion about what it means to be a man? And this is before me too. So it was really kind of strange for friends to be like, why are you doing this? And I was like, I'm just insatiably curious about what it is to live in the skin of a man because I only know this experience and there's so many layers of conditioning that differentiate our paths. Um, And from the very first moment, and I'm sure you've had this with projects because you're a doer, I knew we had to record it. And so the agreement was we get to be visiting professors in each other's lives. So every dinner from Berlin to Tel Aviv to LASF, Sydney, Berlin has been recorded. And that's now the makings of the book. And so the intersection you asked between kind of storytelling, narrative development and healing and this men's work is you know, we can only do better when we know better, as Maya Angelou said. And so this is a bird's eye view into some men men's minds. Um, this is a book for men to understand that they are not alone and they don't have to suffer in the cave of their own mind. And this is also a book for women to understand the unknown, right? We, it's very rare that we get to sit in a room with four to eight men in cities all over the world and just hear their stories. Uh, And it's, it's to fundamentally change the way that I show up in my friendships with men, in my dating life, because now I know what I didn't know. And 
the book is really about building bridges of compassion through storytelling. Amazing. So the one, the one point that I did want to highlight was using your pain to turn you into something stronger and better rather than letting it consume you and like empty you out. And I I talk about this concept of anti-fragility, which is one of the pillars of enoughness. And um, you know, it's whenever there's chaos, whenever there is some negative stimulus that, um, you know, most fragile objects, when you apply pressure to them, they break mm. and they shatter and they never get back to that normal state. Um, they're always wow. a little bit worse. Yeah. But being anti-fragile is not only getting back to the normal state, but to actually become even stronger. And so there was, so Nassim Talib is the one who coined the term anti-fragile, but it was, it's almost in some ways against that law of nature because things, things don't really, you know, when you think of a vase, it just shatters. But with, with our minds, when we reshape our narratives and who we can become, that is, um, that seems like also what you've done, right? You've, you've become anti-fragile in the way that you are taking your pain and shaping it into a new narrative. Yeah. Um, thanks for saying that. It's it taken years. Like I want to make it very clear. This has been a 13 year journey with a lot of experiments on the mind, body and spirit. Some that were successful and some that in the moment were just really painful, but the growth mindset uh, has been the thing that's kept me anti-fragile. So I teach my students two mindsets. Whenever we think about life and the constants, right? Death, pain, taxes, and change. Those are like four things that all of us are going to go through no matter what. I can't do anything about death or taxes. That's on you. But I'll be damned if I don't change your relationship to change and pain. And exactly to what you said about being anti-fragile, what if we could get really curious and instead of reactive, in that moment of deep change, ask yourself, how is this change contributing to my higher evolution? And in that moment of deep pain, ask yourself, how is this pain actually a professor? And if you can do those two things consistently, that's a different level of living in my experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, that awareness came from this um, this feeling of never being good enough, you know, achieving external validation, doing more and more and more and overworking. And, you know, I, I can say that I haven't been fully cured of the overwork. I think, you know, the biggest, the biggest change is that when I started digging into the topic of enoughness, I felt fundamentally like there was something lacking, right? There's that, there's that hole that I just, I wasn't good enough. And so what had happened was I got to a point actually this past year where I was like, you know what? I I do love myself. I am enough. Oh my God, I figured it out. And I think it's this evolutionary process where, you know, I actually changed this podcast, call it Leadership with Lisa, because I was like, I'm going to focus on leading now. And then I, I came back again where I think it has developed into a different almost like a different modality of, I feel that fundamentally I am enough, but there's so much more I want to do. And I know that you have this, this drive as well. You're like, you know, we're both talking about, we want to write a book and then we want to like launch a series. And then there's like the Oprah stage and then there's all this. And so, 
And so there's this interesting balance of, um, you know, I came back to enoughness because I was like, wait, this is a never ending, always evolving topic. And how do you, and I'm curious how you are reconciling in your mind, this loving your narrative, feeling full, but at the same time being like, I'm not, it's not enough if I don't get my book out there and like get that stage. You are so brave and beautiful in sharing about your enoughness. I just want to honor that because you're speaking for millions of women who have done everything by the tea, by the book, and still felt that emptiness inside. And it's one of the things that drew me to you when I met you. And it, you know, as I've watched your voice grow, you have been just a beacon of possibility. So thank you. I think it's cultural. You know, like we both come from third generation immigrant mentality where it was, if you didn't get an A plus, if I got an A minus, I was in trouble. Extra credit was never optional. It was mandatory. Um, So I think it starts very young. And there's a significant amount of data to prove that in early childhood development from the age of zero to seven years old, a child doesn't have the logical functionality fully built out. So if your parent or teacher says you're a bad girl, you start to think that's just the truth. And that becomes the foundation from which you operate. So we've got to really unpack the child wound if we want to ameliorate the not enoughness wound. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is uh, my fear of other people's opinions was equally as loud in my ear as the not enoughness. And they really were like two bullies on my shoulder that fed into each other. And I think when you're surrounded by people that um, are very successful and somehow miraculously made it, and you don't know if they had family money or trust fund money, like... um, or, or if they had connections or anything. So what I recognize is like comparison is the thief of joy. Stop. Every time I catch myself comparing myself to someone, I think, is this generative? Is this actually helping you? Or is this just another piece of data that's slowly eroding at your self-confidence? So the comparison game is no longer a game that I allow myself to play. And then what I recognize is nobody's me. No, even if I feel like there are people that are talking about the things I'm talking about, the way that I'm using my voice, the way that I'm asking the questions, my authentic curiosity is my highest authority. And that means that now I get to be the writer of the rules. And the rules are, there's no competition, there's no timeline, trust the process, and you are enough. And that's it. And if I can think I really want to win at this game because this is not the game that was built by the patriarchy in corporate America. This was not the game built by archaic cultures from, you know, yesteryear. This is the game that I am actively co-creating. And the only person's opinion that really matters is the eight-year-old little kid sitting on my left shoulder and the 88-year-old wise woman sitting on my left. That's it. And that has been a game changer because doing work with men as a woman immediately is uh, threatening and triggering to a lot of people. So I stopped talking about it for a year. And then when I realized that this is actually generation shifting work, that the highest feminist I can be is to ensure that there's more great men out there who are fantastic leaders, loving fathers and devoted partners. I'm 
helping men feel, which is helping them heal, which is preventing them from harming themselves or society, I feel really lit up about this mission. And I don't care if there's going to be people that don't get it. I love that. And it's it's so interesting because in some ways, the work that we're doing is like two sides of the coin because men and women have been victimized by the dominant narrative, but it's different work. And I almost think of it as you know, the way that enoughness has affected women or this, this narrative, which tells us that we're small, that we have to fit in a certain box and we're not enough. But then for men, they're not enough, but then they have to accumulate more things and they get bigger. And the most egotistical, loud man is probably the one who feels like he's most insecure and not good enough and has some sort of chip on his shoulder. But in this work, it's almost like we have to build women up to believe that their voice matters and to be big and take up space. And we have to break men down so that they can become vulnerable and emotional and like be softer. You said it so perfectly. Yeah, because that's exactly what the work is. I have a program called Know Your Voice, Know Your Power. And it's all women. Men don't have an issue there. Um, And then the work that I do with men is really about relational wealth and integrity alignment and kind of like life visioning, um, which women don't often have trouble in those arenas. So it's, it's just fascinating. And of course there's exceptions to every rule. One thing that I wanted to contribute um, and ask you, and this is a question that a teacher asked me, given that all of our actions are really driven by desire, there is a payoff that we get for holding on to identities, right? There was a payoff I had for holding on to the father wound identity. So when I think about not enoughness, one of the things that's really helped me in that moment where I feel really unworthy is, Vika, what is the payoff you get for sitting in this not enoughness, enabling more of it? What do you think it is for you? Well, so one one thing that I think I'll start with what it's not because one thing, one way that I see people use not enoughness is they become victims and um, they let go of their agency and they're say, they blame the world for their problems. Um, and so I don't think it's that uh, because if there's one thing that I am, it's I take full responsibility for um, what it is that I do. I go back to, you know, something that, a teacher that I had, a spiritual teacher, and she had said something about like happiness. And, you know, there's people who blame other people for their problems. So they don't take responsibility. There's people who don't know what they want. And then there's people who um, don't count their blessings. And so I know that the biggest challenge I've had was to like be present and actually feel that the now is enough. Yeah. The yeah. present moment, not that future, that potent, like living for the, the next goal. And I'm wondering how that served my narrative, like what, how that was serving my narrative. Um, because certainly working myself to the ground and like deteriorating my health and not sleeping well was not helping me. The not enoughness was what drove me to work harder. Yeah, it drove me to achieve. It is the reason. I mean, it's not the reason, but it's the reason why I will push everything aside for the sake of achieving the goal. Right, right. And 
And so when I achieve that goal, I get the check mark, I get the accolade, I get the respect and appreciation and admiration. And then I, I keep running after it. So I think that is the, that's how it served me. It got me that, you know, shiny resume and the nice LinkedIn and all the titles. So. And that's a really powerful thing because what you're acknowledging right now is the neurological wiring of your brain has created grooves over and over again, like not enoughness, dangling the carrot to success, to achievement, dopamine flooding the system, feeling good. How do we do this again, body? Oh, we start with not enoughness. And so it becomes this cycle that your body has been conditioned to respond to because they know that on the other side of not enoughness is going to be a dopamine hit Mm -hmm. or serotonin. You know, you're going to get the accolades and, and be revered by your peers. Um, And so what I have found really powerful is kind of studying the science of our neurotransmitters so that we can acknowledge that we're DJs and we get to up different levels in different ways. Um, So really unpacking it, not just on a narrative front, but also on a neurological front Mm -hmm. has really helped me. Like it works with addictions too. Like I've realized like uh, in reading this book called Irresistible, all of us are pretty much addicted to the internet. (laughs) or like a sugar detox which i'm on day eight of it's because my brain has been wired to think that sugar is an emotional reward mechanism Mm -hmm. and so self-awareness like you're you know when i think about you what you really stand for is an awakening and once we know what we were kind of blind to and we're just swimming in the waters of we get to be better versions of ourselves absolutely and this addiction, I think, you know, to the internet that you mentioned around, it's really addiction to other people validating us very quickly with mm-hmm. a like, with a comment. Um, and I have this constant conversation still in my mind as, you know, someone who is building, you know, for both of us, it's like a, a platform that requires an audience. You know, a book needs readers, a speaker needs people listening to your speech, and that it's in inevitable part of it today that you have to build a social presence. You have to care about those things. But I'm at this split where I recognize that it is not that like, you know, having a thousand followers, 10,000, 50,000, million, like that's not going to bring me more true happiness and fulfillment. And yet I have to do it. And when I start, then I'm like addicted to it. So it's like, I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with that. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely feel you because, you know, we're all storytellers and artists. And so you want your work to make an impact. And it's that tension between, am I just perpetuating the same unhealthy behaviors that I'm taking a stand against? Um, What I read most recently really shocked me that if users are scrolling their phone for three hours a day on social media, that's 12 years of your life. Wow. I'm just like, is that really worth 12 years of my life? Three hours a day? Three hours a day. And I go well over three hours a day because to your point, we're sharing our stories and I see the internet as just like a a dispersal system. Mm. Um, So it's not something that I have solved either. And I I think it's really great that you and I can can sit with it in tension because um, that's human. Yeah, that's crazy. I think of, uh, well, actually during quarantine over these last few months, I've really diminished my my posting amount. So, you know, it's like 
I think there's people who are trying to grow, um, you know, get more like audience. It's like post certain amount of times, you know, like, like this many posts, this often consistency, consistency, consistency. And I was at this point where I'm like, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> I'm just, what if I just didn't post for like two months? And, you know, and, then, and I think, and there was this fear. Where I was like, okay, now I'm just like not into it. But like, does that mean I'm slacking? Yeah. No. Um, and it's, yeah. Yeah. I started um, working with the sleep company and it's turned me on to the importance of sleep and how disruptive technology is to mm-hmm. sleep. And so I am the voice of this app called Sleep Space and it helps people create a sleep journey. So we live consciously, right? But we don't sleep consciously. And so the more that I've been working on creating these sleep stories and understanding that not all sleep is created equal, you can't go to bed at one o'clock in the morning and get your eight hours and expect to feel rested because you've blocked out the most important part of sleep, which is 9 p.m. to midnight. That's where you're getting your deep sleep and REM sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I have, I I literally created like on an index card, um, a night routine. I've always had a morning practice, but I haven't had a night practice. And part of that night practice is no screens after 8 PM before I go to bed. Um, and so I think we can live in harmony with technology if we don't let technology become an extension of our brain. That means no screens in the first hour when you wake up. You know, the way you start your day in that first hour is how you own your day. No screens two hours before you go to bed um, so that you actually give your brain a chance to breathe. Hmm. Technology is really new and really only in the last 17 years. So we haven't even had a chance. I think you and I are the last generation that knows what it was like to have AOL dial up, right? Yeah. And, and so I've started like no screen Sundays. And I started that when I was an ad exec in New York. I don't do Instagram or social media on weekends. And I started that like a few weeks ago and it has been so refreshing to not live for the story or see a sunset. And then instead of actually being in awe of it, think like, oh, I've got to get the perfect angle. Um, So those are just a few hacks that have helped me be more present. Mm. It's so funny because when you're saying those things, I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's like, can't, well, it's, it's funny that you bring up um, sleep that that's actually one of my biggest struggles right now is trying to figure out how to, sleep it's interestingly two days ago i slept a total of zero minutes and i I was tossing and turning and anxious and and then the next day i i gave up at around 5 30 i was like screw it let me just turn on my screen you know start working and then i did and i had such a crazy day um so many interviews so many like conversations and phone calls and meetings and i was i was got to the point where it was 9 p.m i'm like i'm not even i mean i'm kind of tired but like there's something like I'm definitely running on adrenaline and um it was the first time where I took a bath in I don't know I was like I need to just like figure out how to shut my body off for a little bit where it's not just sitting at the screen um but yeah I first thing I do I will admit this is I grab my phone I I don't check social media anymore probably what's interesting I found is that when I 
don't post on social media, I actually don't go on it very often. Mm. Um, so that's been really good for me. But I'm immediately checking text messages and emails. Um, and then just, I don't know, just like on my phone and at night, like one eye looking at the screen, watching like some Netflix before to try to relax my mind. So something that helps is to put your phone on the other side of the room or all together in the bathroom. Yeah. Because it's really hard to break these habits, but think about your eyesight. That's like one thing, especially at night. And what you're doing is you're creating blue light in your brain. Mm. So that's halting um, melatonin production, which is the thing that helps you sleep. So there's, you know, for me, it helps to geek out on the science because as a storyteller, I have found that I could justify just about anything. So I'm like, oh, it's just another hour. But when I know the science of something, it's like, ooh, okay, you can't have that because it's actually going to harm you. And that's when I start to realize that every one of my behaviors is coming from a place of, if I really loved myself, would I put the phone down? If I, if I really treasured my time, would I waste it? And, and so that kind of like self-compassionate living has helped me break through all of my destructive patterns and, and still not all days are perfect, but I found that like having a visual representation, Jerry Seinfeld said, you know, never break the streak when he was writing jokes. So I like to see no sugar, no sugar, no sugar, you know, no screens, no screens, no screens. And if I can, it just motivates me to know that I'm flexing this muscle of self-discipline mm-hmm. and I can do it. Like I've never gone it out eight days without sugar unless I, you know, was on a parasite cleanse. And now it's like, the way you train your body is how you train your mind. Hmm. I really like the framing of if I really loved myself, would I, if I really treasured my time, would I, yeah. I think those are really good. Um, almost just like mental, I hate the word hack, but I'm trying to think of another word for it, but like just um, methods toolkit. Yeah, exactly. And I think as teachers, as coaches, um, you know, we have to become our own guinea pigs because it's through the lived experience that we then have the empathy to work with our students. And half the time, Lisa, I feel like like a, a really high level kindergarten teacher in my own mind. And I'm trying, you know, I, I have a dry erase marker and every night after I get out of the shower, I write myself a love note. Mm. And then the next morning when I'm brushing my teeth, I get to read that love note to myself. And some people might think that's really silly, but I think it's about learning how to communicate with the inner self so that you never feel out of your body, out of your mind, out of your skin. Like I feel so much more grounded when I create a vision of the day in, like you were saying, future tense, because then at night when I read it, I'm like, I did all the things I set out to do this morning. And even if I missed a few I feel really good that that was top of mind. So the the greatest love, the greatest relationship we'll ever have is with ourselves. Absolutely. We can compare Jessica Parker for that one, but, <laughs> but it's true. And um, I love what you're doing in the world and how you're creating spaces for women to really step into their power and know their voice and shine. Um, and like I said, like I've had a couple really rough years. You met me right after my grandpa died. And I was like a shadow of myself. And when I saw you standing in your power, it showed me it was possible. Um, it, 
it scared me because I was like, I don't think I could ever be like Lisa again. You know, you're consistently creating meaningful content. And I thought if she can do it, I can do it. And I think that's the power of women owning their voices. We get to lift each other up whether we know it or not, you might have impacted, you know, thousands and millions of women who will never get the chance to say this to your face. So on behalf of all of them, I just want to say thank you for overcoming the not enoughness because you are pioneering the path for all of us. Thank you. That means a lot. And I, I always say to, you know, the, the clients that I work with, um, I talk about, um, when, when we talk about power and like powerful women, I always say, you know, how can you tell who is the most powerful woman in the room? And, um, it's like, is she the coldest? Is she the richest? Is she the, um, loudest? And it's like, none of those, like the most powerful woman in the room is always the one who has the most love to give because no one is her competition, right? She's so aware in tune with her unique strengths, her unique value to the world. And you talked about, you know, some of your own when you recognize this and talking about comparison, right? It's, um, and when you are so in touch with that, you, like you just don't see competition. There's no room for scarcity. And you realize that in sharing your power with other people, that that's not only, empowering them it also empowers you because you're growing as a person yeah yeah oh absolutely and then you get to a place where like all I want to do is see all of my friends succeed so I carve out time every week to just help my women friends do the thing that I have learned comes naturally to me so it's like you know, when I was in high school, we had 150 community service hours we had to complete every year to graduate. And I'm so grateful for that because that put us at a very young age in the mindset of be in service to something bigger than yourself. And so every woman listening has a unique gift. And what if you took two hours a week to offer your gift to your community and say, hey, I'm going to do office hours, come to me and ask questions about anything that I uniquely feel like I have authority to talk about. Um, how would that change the way that we related to each other as women? That's really beautiful. That's a really great way of reframing it because I think it's also really easy to, you know, again, myself included, feel burnt out and feel just tired and not wanting to give because there's just so much to do. Yeah. 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 And you are giving like you, you are giving just in your being. And I think that's what I also want to share with women is like, if you can truly own your power and, and share that genuinely and generously, that is enough. Um, because something that you posted, something that you said, it planted a seed of possibility in the reader. Um, and so even if you don't have the space to carve out to give to your community, just the way that you're carrying life through your lens is enough. Amazing. Well, on that note, I'm curious um, how you would define enoughness and when will you know that it's, you're, you're there and you're good enough? <laughs> the overachiever in me is breaking <laughs> <out> in hives. <laughs> Um, when I have six New York Times bestsellers in a TV show. <laughs> that was the old narrative, and I'm so grateful to be rid of it. Um, how I will know, let me sit with this. 
I will know that I am enough when I have true peace of mind, when I have a grounding in my feet that no matter where I stand, I am equally whole. I will know I am enough when I wake up every day brimming with gratitude to be alive, to be healthy, to create, and no number on a scale, no amount of likes or comments has any sway. I will know that I am enough when loving myself feels as sweet as a lover's kiss. I just got chills. <laughs> I am, one of my hidden talents is, um, is writing spoken word poetry, and I've only ever shared it in like scribbles of my journal, but mm. you're encouraging me to share it now more publicly, so thank you. Amazing. And last question for you, what does it mean to you to be a woman? What it means for me to be a woman is to be aliver than alive, to recognize that my life is about creation, creation of love, cultivation of creativity, nurturing of my spirit and others, the capacity to help people see the love inside themselves. What it means to be a woman is to believe in yourself more than anyone has ever believed in you so that you can overcome any of the obstacles that are in your way because you are a woman. Um, what it means to be a woman is to be in service of something greater than yourself that benefits society forward. And what it means to be a woman is to be a source of strength for your community. What it means to be a woman is to be a walking, breathing case study. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work and for your words and wisdom. This has been uh, just an incredible and even cathartic conversation. I feel <laughs> releasing. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> it's um. It's just so cool to, and and I'm sure you've you've had this. Like you meet people at conferences all the time, and then you kind of get to see the ways that your worlds weave. And it is so incredible that our worlds are intersecting in this way, and we're both using our voices as a force of truth and good in the world. Um, so it has been really healing to just reconnect with you. And thank yeah. you for asking me to be part of this. Amazing. And I look forward to hugging you in person. When it, <laughs> um, and I just want to leave telling you, you are so much more than enough. <laughs> you are so much more than enough. You are radiant and just so powerful in your humility um, and you inspire me right back at you yeah. we'll have to do this again all right big hugs thank you hugs thanks again for listening to the enoughness podcast if you enjoyed this episode make sure to subscribe via apple podcasts or spotify share with a friend leave a review i appreciate each and every one of you 
If you want to dive deeper and work directly with me to level up in your career and life and unlock the most powerful version of yourself, head over to lisacarmenwang.com. Never forget, you are enough.